Hey, welcome back. This is Create Out Loud with me, Jen Loudon, your best-selling author, your creativity mentor, your right in the trenches with you friend. (laughs) On this show, we invite really interesting, dynamic, groundbreaking creatives in all kinds of fields and endeavors to tell us, like, what's it really like to create what they're creating? What's it really like to make money doing this? What's it really like to do the work day to day so that you can learn along with them and have a deep and fulfilling creative life? This week, we have Debbie Lockwood. She wrote 1,001 Voices on Climate Change. She's a science journalist, and she spent basically five years traveling around the world on bike, audio recording all kinds of people and how they're being impacted by climate change. We're going to talk about the process of getting that book published, how many times it was rejected. We're going to talk about what's it like to travel by bike by yourself as a young woman and lots of other things, including the power of listening. So here we go. Debbie, I'm so curious about how creatives follow their ideas and how they know which ideas to follow. So you write on your website, in August 2013, I rode my bicycle 800 miles down the Mississippi River for my senior thesis in folklore and mythology at Harvard. Along the way, I recorded 50 hours of stories from people I met about anything. I didn't really know what I was doing. Tell me about where that impulse to record stories even started. There's a couple of origin stories for it, but the one I'll mention first was actually the Boston Marathon bombings, which sounds like a weird way to get into climate change reporting. (laughs) But I was an undergraduate student at the time, and we were locked down for a couple of days. Now, of course, a multi-day long lockdown doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but at the time it was really transformational. And I had this strong urge that when I got out of the house, what I wanted to do more than anything else was to have face-to-face conversations with strangers Mm. and to remind myself that not everyone is murderous and that there's a kind of beauty in spontaneity and connectedness. And so I cut open a cardboard box and (laughs) wrote open call for stories on this piece of cardboard and a piece of ribbon on either end of that and just walked around the city and all sorts of people walked up and talked to me. I wanted to keep doing that. There it is again. She wanted to keep doing it. What do you want? How are you honoring and following those desires? They don't have to be as big and all consuming as this one, but they have to be listened to. That's how we follow what's interest, what interests us. We honor it by listening and taking even the littlest actions. For my senior thesis, I'd already planned this bike trip down part of the Mississippi River where I was going to document audio stories from people I met along the way. Part of the inspiration for that, again, totally random event. <laughs> I tore my ACL playing pickup soccer the summer before. I was on the rowing team and I think I've always been a person who is very comfortable expressing myself physically. And suddenly that mode of expression was really different for me as I was recovering from the surgery and learning how to move in my body again. Riding my bike was one of the first things that I was able to do in recovery. I went from using the bicycle as a tool to get around campus to actively seeing the bicycle as the tool for my liberation. (laughs) And (laughs) I, yeah, decided that I wanted to have a goal to ride my bike a really long way. So those are kind of the two threads that, that came together to lead me 
to that decision of the Mississippi River trip in 2013. Interesting, isn't it? How different moments and influences and situations in our lives create those opportunities if we're willing to see them and yeah. to trust them. Yeah. yeah something... I try to keep that in mind now when something negative mm-hmm. happens that mm-hmm. like, okay, there's probably something unexpectedly beautiful that's going to come out of this that I just don't know about yet. So I have to wait. But then how did the project become this book? How did it become about climate change? Where was that moment for you? Yeah. So it was actually really inspired by some of the storytellers I met while I was riding my bicycle down the Mississippi River. The farther down the river I was riding my bike, the more stories I was hearing about water and climate change in terms of intensified storms or people making the really difficult decision in some cases to leave a place that they had called home for generations in the aftermath of a big storm, saltwater encroachment on the land, all sorts of things like that. And the thing about those stories is that they were really sticky. What do you mean? Well, once I got back to the Boston area, I couldn't stop thinking about them. Like they would just pop up in my head in random moments. And of course I was writing about them for my thesis where realize that it might be really powerful to put some of these stories that have been so impactful for me personally in dialogue with stories from other parts of the world, right? Here's one example of one community that is impacted by climate change in a really direct way. But how else is climate change impacting people? Mm. What does that look like? What does that smell like? What does that taste like and feel like? And how are people coping with this in their lives right now? And, And the other thing I think I recognized in thinking more deeply about it too is that climate is an issue that's often discussed in these really abstract and so numerical degrees of temperature change Mm -hmm. or feet of sea level rise or parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But the thing about that, it's like, okay, but those are all outside of me. But storytelling is this ancient technology that we have to connect with each other. It has a way of worming its way inside of our brains, right? And this is something I really understood as a student of folklore mythology at the time. And I was curious, you know, how it might be possible to amplify and diversify the types of stories that we tell about climate change. So it's not just all these numbers and scientific terms, and it's not just polar bears, right? But it's the voices of people who are living with this right now. And that's what I set out to document in a way that felt kind of unique, but also like really well-suited to me and where I felt like my strengths were at the time. Yeah, that's why I really wanted to talk to you besides the fact that it really seemed like you followed that desire and you were shaped by what was happening in your life and the project emerging, which I'm so fascinated by. But the other thing I'm deeply fascinated by is how do we get people to care Mm. about climate change? They're experiencing it. Almost every human on the planet is experiencing it now. How do we get people to realize this is now, this is affecting them? Like, how do you see the book connecting? Do you see it connecting to people and awakening them to how they can take action? It's hard for me to say, but that was absolutely my intention. There's one piece of research that I I return to quite a lot in thinking about climate change communication in general that's been done. It's a longitudinal study that's been done for several years now by the Yale Program for Climate Change Communications. Mm -hmm. And they, for any of your listeners who might not know, 
recognize that it's sort of unhelpful to neatly divide their U.S. focus. So to neatly divide Mm -hmm. the U.S. public into climate change believers and climate change deniers, right? right? Like, first of all, this isn't a religion, (laughs) but second of all, (laughs) it's a lot more nuanced than that. There's a spectrum of how people feel about, engage with this information about climate change and also how they let or don't let it shape their lives. And who I really wrote this book for is people who are somewhere in the middle. Maybe Uh they know a little bit about climate, but they feel kind of overwhelmed by it. I think everybody does. Yeah. Like that. The climate scientists I work with as a writing coach, they're, you know, they're immersed in this and they're completely overwhelmed. I mean, who is not overwhelmed by this? Yeah. And I think that there's a way to move through that, but it it involves a lot of really close listening. And that's kind of another thread that I tried Mm -hmm. to trace throughout this text was just how important and how difficult it can be to really listen to each other. But that when we open ourselves up in that way, and also when we are really intentional about, you know, (laughs) rooms of power in which decisions are being made, that they have to include people who are impacted by climate change right now, oftentimes, and, and this gets into, you know, some of the principles of environmental justice, The people who are the most impacted right now are very often those who are already experiencing various forms of structural oppression. So that's people of color, it's people living in the global South, it's folks living in low-income communities. And there's all sorts of different ways to map that. Also women, I believe, are disproportionately impacted by Mm -hmm. these issues. And so it's just a lens through which... We can think about this, that if you look at the negotiators at the UN climate summits, they're white, they're male, and they're really old. There's like this incredible group of young women, mostly from the global South, who are mobilized on these issues and they're in a civil society capacity, but they don't have the decision-making power. And so there's just these imbalances everywhere. But, you know, my hope is that this book can be one tiny drop in, in a bucket of pushing things towards having these conversations, breaking climate silence wherever possible, and just making dialogue about climate change something that we can do in an everyday way, not only by listening to scientific experts of whom I interview some in this book, and they're fantastic, but also by listening to a mother living in Tuvalu, who's having to make a decision about how to allocate a really scant amount of water from a desalination plant in an intense drought for her family. And there are stories that I documented on this journey that are are sticky for me, right? And I think it'll be a little bit different what, pe- what resonates mm-hmm. with people, but sure. I also tried to get as much in there in terms of content as I could, just so that there's so much to choose from. It's almost like a, a buffet of stories, right? So full. It is a buffet of stories. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. But first, I want to go back and talk about banishing, breaking climate silence is something I've written about and trying to help people understand how simple it can be, but it's also really frightening for people. Many people don't feel smart enough to talk about it. They feel like they need to know more fact. One of the things you said is that when you first started back on the Mississippi part of the project, before it became about climate change, you had a hard time listening. You felt like you were, when you were listening back on your tapes, you were like, I'm squashing other people's stories. Mm. So let's take this as two parts. Like, how did you learn to listen. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So listening and listening deeply is really hard. It (laughs) is hard. 
when I'm listening deeply to someone, I am, I've eliminated all distractions around me. I am leaning forward on my chair, I'm making eye contact, I'm nodding. And most importantly, I'm mostly being silent. What I was doing wrong, I think, in those early interviews is that I would jump in with a question before someone was even done saying what they had to say. And I only realized this by listening back to that tape because I was, I was doing audio recordings. Oh God, like this was just starting to get interesting and I threw it off in a completely different direction. Or, you know, the flip side of that too, is I was really uncomfortable with silence. Mm -hmm. And so if there was ever a moment of silence in the interview, I would jump right in. But sometimes and oftentimes, maybe silence is just people thinking of what to say next, coming at it from a place of feeling prepared and that I knew I could ask follow-up questions, but not being so quick to jump in because that's not really listening. That's, that's speaking. <laughs> you know, our listeners are creative people. So what are some creative ways that we can banish or break climate silence? I would really throw that question back to your listeners and ask them like, okay, well, what do you know about yourself? What are you really good at? What do you love doing? What gets you excited about getting up in the morning, right? There's a way to do this that that is joyful, actually. Mm -hmm. And then also, who are the people around you who are also engaging with these issues? And is that a group that you can be in community with and use your strength to help work on their cause together? Like I think about, I'm doing this interview from Vermont, but pretty close to where I am in New Hampshire, there's an incredible group called 350. New Hampshire that's working on shutting down some of the, it's either the last or one of the last coal-fired power plants in New England. Their work is incredibly creative. There's groups like that that always need more people to come in with fresh ideas to listen, but also participate. And so I would really encourage people if that's something they're interested in, but also it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be a protest or linking arms in front of a coal-fired power plant. It can also be writing an essay, talking to someone in your life, who you love, establishing a shared set of values, and then asking how climate change impacts those values. There's all sorts of different ways of doing it. And I think that just the more that we can engage with these issues, the better off we'll all be in the long term. I want to talk about how you decided to structure the book. We, we go along with you on the bike as you're going to, you know, all these different countries. Yeah. And we get to a sense of you and who you are and and what's it like to do so many, how many thousands of miles did you go? Oh God. Okay. So this is a little bad, but I was getting so competitive with myself (laughs) that if I didn't bike a certain number of miles in a day, I was like, oh, the day is a failure. And so actually I threw out my bicycle computer very early on in the trip because I realized that I needed to just be focusing on documenting the stories and not on some abstract concept of distance that didn't really matter. I can't answer you that question, but basically I was on the bicycle for about two and a half years and then not on the bicycle, but still traveling to other places for another two and a half years after that. The journey was very zigzag. I thought when I started that it was going to be a year and that I was going to travel a bit in some Pacific Island nations, start riding my bike in New Zealand, and then bypass Australia completely because I had grown up watching Steve Irwin. I thought everything was poisonous. (laughs) It was going to kill me and just fly to the UK because also I didn't want to have to have any language troubles in places where I don't speak 
the language that most people speak. And what happened was that once I finally got to New Zealand, I met some really incredible climate activists there who challenged me to consider the impact of the flying that I had done to date, to mm. go online to one of these carbon footprint calculators and just put in the numbers. And sure enough, the flights that I had taken disproportionately impacted anything else that I could do. And also was just like so many hundreds, if not thousands of times more than many other people in the world. Right. And it, it felt, I felt like, okay, this is a creative challenge. How long can I travel without flying? I guess I'll use boats. So I decided to crowdfund the money on Kickstarter to take a cargo ship across the Tasman Sea from New Zealand to Australia, spent six months cycling up the East coast of Australia, and then hitched a ride on a sailboat that was going to take me all the way to Indonesia. But I got pretty seasick and it didn't quite work out socially on that boat. Ended up on an island, like kind of off the coast of Australia in the far north, and then hitched a ride on another boat that was going south. Ended up back in Sydney, speedily crowdfunded for another cargo ship back to New Zealand because it was the only place that I could get. My visa was running out. After that, I spent several months trying to find any kind of passage by boat not to Australia and was unsuccessful. So I bought a cheap flight to Bangkok and traveled in Southeast Asia for a bit through Thailand, Laos, and Cambodia. By that point, really needed to come home. And so I did for a bit. And then from there, it was just a ping pong journey of like cobbling together. Okay. I've been invited to speak at this conference. There was a, a random rowing event in China that really likes having Ivy League rowers. And because of NCAA rules at the time, they couldn't have current athletes, but they could have recent alums. So I pieced together several trips for the course of the next two and a half years that took me everywhere from Kazakhstan to the Canadian Arctic. Do you know, when did you know you were writing a book? someone told me really early on, they're like, oh, that's going to be a book. And I'm like, Haha, me? Book? What? My original idea was to make an audio map on a website where you can click on a point and listen to a story from that place. And there is kind of a beta version of that at yes, thousandonestories.org. What happened was a couple of things. One is there, there's actually a, a secret Facebook group that started the year I graduated from college in 2014 that was called Binders in that it was a group for women and gender non-binary writers to mentor each other. One of my good friends who is much farther along in her writing career than I am invited me into that group. And then there's all these subgroups that splintered out of that really incredible mentorship from some very seasoned freelance writers in those communities. Those women helped me write my first pitch. They shared editor contacts throughout the industry. And so I ended up with my first byline in 2015 in The Guardian. Mentors. We can find them in all kinds of places, in all kinds of ways. And we have to be open to them, open to putting ourselves in situations, open to making requests and showing up and being seen. That is something that you're going to hear her say uh, as the interview goes on. Where can you find those mentors? Where can you take those brave moments to show up, to pitch your work? Where can you ask for help? Where can you join? Small movements like that every day, even if they're just joining that kind of Facebook group that she was speaking about, they're so important for working uh, your creative process especially if you want to share your work in a wider way, you want to keep learning. So looking for mentorship, it's scary. It's scary for me, but it's essential. By that point, I had been keeping a blog. I had been writing a fair bit about the journey on social media and taking a ton of notes all the time. I had all these handwritten journals that periodically I would send home just as a way of remembering everything that was happening. Oh, that's and fantastic. Of course, so I had important. all the audio material too. Mm -hmm. 
And so after I wrote an essay, I forget whether it was for the Guardian or the New York Times, but a, a few agents approached me and I ended up working with this incredible guy named Tim. <laughs> and Tim and I sent out the first round of a book proposal in 2016 or 2017, I believe. And we got back 40 plus rejections from editors. And he asked me, he said, Debbie, do you want to read them? Some people don't. I'm like, no, send them to me. I'm going to print it out and like post them on my wall and read them all the time and think about it. And, and it was interesting. Wait, I think- wait, wait, why? Why did you want to do that? Being able to metabolize and pay attention to rejections and feedback is such an art and it is essential in our creative process, no matter what our goals or desires, if we're going to keep learning. It has been so hard for me. I used to just fold in on myself and have to go to bed for two days. I'm not exaggerating. Now, criticism, tearing someone apart, hurting someone personally, that is never something we need to learn to metabolize. That's something we need to exercise immediately from our psyches with help from people who care about us. There are people out there who want to tear other creatives down. Protect yourself from that. Don't take that to heart. But when we're pursuing sharing our work in whatever way, we are going to get people who say, not for me. If we can get them to give us feedback about why and then begin to discern for ourselves, what about this do I want to listen to? What about this fits my desires What about this is going to help me get there without compromising my work in a way that makes me sick to my stomach? We can't turn away from it. We can't take it wholeheartedly. And we never take in anything that's meant to savage us. If it's about you or your future, if it's somebody saying, you'll never be able to do this, this sucks, go get a day job. Oh my God, burn it. Never have anything to do with that teacher or person or editor or or curator or whomever again. That's someone with trauma and wounds that wants to wound other people. But when you're sending out work and you're getting like, this is the reason why it won't work, or this is the reason why it won't, doesn't work for us. What can you take from that over time with a lot of self-compassion that can help your work grow? I love that she kept looking at this and using it and it took a long time. And then the timing was just right, as you'll hear in a moment. But It's not about that outcome. It's about how we're learning and growing without ever destroying our own souls or spirits. Oh, I was just curious because I realized like, okay, I think I can do this, but I just need to internalize the feedback to be edited. Of course, there were a couple of really insightful things that came out of those just two sentences that people send back in their rejection notes. You know, people thought the material was super original and interesting, but the first thing that was kind of in common was that books about climate change don't sell. And I think that that was perhaps true, but also perhaps a function of the fact that it was 2016 and the conversation about climate change has changed so much. So dramatically, even in the last year, it's astonishing. Yes. Yeah. So in a way, when this book actually came out, I think it was the right time for it because there Mm -hmm. is this appetite to understand this issue because so many more people are being impacted by it every single day. The second piece of feedback was super helpful. And so I, I had not included very much of myself because one, okay, it's really vulnerable to do so. Mm -hmm. I had read some books where I felt like writers used the journey that they had or their interviews with other people as means to their own self-actualization. And mm-hmm. that felt kind of icky to me and was not something I wanted to do even a little bit. So I pendulum swung in the opposite direction. Wait, stop right there and tell me more. I understand what you mean about authors using it as self-actualization, but what about that was icky for you in terms of this project? 
project? Well, the journey is not about me, right? I'm like kind of the vessel for it in mm. a weird way. And I had to insert myself as the narrative sinew because all of these anecdotes didn't make sense. Otherwise, if people weren't there traveling along with me, but I didn't want it to be about how I changed. Oh, okay. I can talk about that separately, but that's not this book. This book is about how people are living with climate change right now. I love that because there's a clarity about that, that is one of the hardest things for writers to come up with the clarity. I was just coaching a writer this morning and now I'm like, okay, we have two different books here <laughs> or there's three or there's four. It's so common. So that kind of clarity is precious. Curious if you've had this experience with your books as well. I have a good friend here in Vermont who's in her nineties and she has degenerative eyesight. And so she can't read, but she was a journalist and she tells the most incredible stories in the world. Her name's Cornelia. She's one of my best friends. But she's asked me every time I visit to read a little bit of my book out loud to her. This is something I want to build into my revision process earlier on because I did it sometimes, but not cover to cover at the end. Holy guacamole. I'm like making line edits as I go, even though it's done. It's so frustrating, but kind of hilarious at the same time. Yes. I always, always tell my writers and myself, print it out. Don't do Mm -hmm. it off the screen. Nope. Read it as fast as you can. Don't take as few breaks as possible. So Mm -hmm. you can read a 300 page manuscript in a day and a half. Don't edit as you go. You are allowed to cross stuff out. You're allowed to make quick notes in the margin, but you're not allowed to actually start editing because then you'll lose the the through line that you're going for, which is, does this hang together as a whole? Where am I Mm -hmm. repeating stuff? Where am I getting bored? Fun because there's so many lessons like that that I learned. Like it's only possible to really learn how to do something epic like writing a book or, you know, riding one's bicycle across entire countries by doing it. And exactly. you know, I definitely had that experience on the bike too, where all of the bike maintenance things that I know now were because things broke and I needed to figure out how to fix it on the fly. I'm always amazed by how often I and, and the people I work with forget this. We want to think our way there. I mean, the other thing I'll say too, is that people around the world are so kind. You, I, I'm sure you were afraid at times, but you were so clear how grateful you were for every encounter you had and how well taken care of you felt. I think the generosity of strangers absolutely kept me alive, <laughs> able to do this trip for as long as I could. And so in a way to, you know, this book is very much for them and for the people who took the times out of their lives to talk with me about these issues. Yeah. I want to go back to a question we didn't quite finish, which is how did you decide on the structure of the book? So as you said, your story sure. is the narrative sinew, but yeah. really it's a series of, of short encounters scenes, stories that highlight different people's interactions and the impact of climate change on their life. I decided to organize it loosely chronologically, but first and foremost by geography. Each chapter is a country, but those countries are loosely organized into continents. And then there's these kind of little micro headers and sections that I thought a little bit about, you know, okay, if this was a poem, how would I title the poem of this interaction, Mm -hmm. right? What's the one or two or three words that encapsulate? encapsulate it. And that was inspired by a book that a friend recommended I read while I was drafting pretty early on. It's a novel by Valeria Luiselli called Lost Children Archive. It's this beautiful chronicle of a journey that a family takes from New York City to the American Southwest. And I don't want to ruin it because there's some incredible it's a beautiful plot book. moments mm-hmm. in it. If you can, you know, look up anytime that <laughs> Valeria has spoken because she's incredibly articulate about her own writing 
as well. I was really moved by this in part because as a reader, I really loved being able to pick up and put the book down at many small points. And in a way it kept me reading for longer because I knew I could pause wherever I wanted to. It never felt like a chore to keep going. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is laziness on my part. I don't know, but I didn't have to rely quite so heavily on transitions, which I find to be one of the most difficult parts of writing. It'd have there be this white space on the page functioning as silence. And that's picking up lessons from poetry, but that there was this pause and that the reader could insert a little bit of themselves into that space. And so that really my intention in how each of the chapters are structured. Wait, we didn't say how the book did get sold for yeah. rejections or whatever it was. Now, then what happened? <laughs> okay. So then cut to a couple years later, I have turned 26. So I can't be on my family's health insurance anymore. And that was this kind of artificial deadline I set for myself. Like, thank you, Obamacare, but I need to either get a full-time job with benefits or go to grad school. <laughs> I had applied to several newsroom jobs, but just with the you know freelance background that I had, didn't quite have enough to get to where I wanted to go. And so grad school seems like a good route. I went to MIT to their science writing program, which is focused on science journalism and science communication more broadly. Kind of <laughs> serendipitous. My friend, Emily Pontecorvo, who's an incredible climate journalist now at Grist. She turned to me one afternoon and she's like, Hey, there's this career event. I don't want to go alone. Can you come with me? I'm like, yeah, sure. And it turned out that it was a video call with a man named Sam Ford, who is an incredible human and advocate of young writers and local writers where he's based in Kentucky now. But at the time he was halfway in Kentucky and halfway in New York city, working for Simon and Schuster to help them launch this new imprint called Tiller Press. And there were only three of us in the room. It was me, Emily, and someone else, and then folks who work at the career office. So we had the chance to kind of go around and introduce ourselves. And I mentioned my project just in a couple sentences. And Sam says, oh, that sounds like a book. We should talk. And so because I had the book proposal already prepared from a couple years before, it was pretty easy for me to dust that off. And I was really fortunate after that year of grad school at MIT to get a fellowship at the New York Times opinion section. So I was already in New York. I just want to call out that if you had the thought right then, oh, she got published in the New York Times, that's because she's East Coast elite or super smart or whatever, I could never do that. Absolutely not. There are so many opportunities in all of our career paths, all of our creative career paths to get that kind of boost and get in the public eye in ways that can help our work. But we have to identify them. We have to look for them. In writing, getting in the New York Times is possible for anybody. Washington Post, so many outlets where you can write short personal or opinion pieces. And sometimes they'll go viral. Sometimes they will lead to people contacting you. But in your creative path, where are the places that you're saying, no, I couldn't go for that? Where are the places where you could start to build that kind of following and relationship with the people who want your work, maybe on a bigger stage than you feel ready for? Just something to think about, because I know when people say things like the New York Times, Washington Post, whatever, or whatever it is for your field, sometimes we just shut down or, or think that's not possible for us. And I want to tell you that it absolutely is. That doesn't mean it won't take hard work and luck and timing and all those other things. It might not happen. But if you close down right away, that's where I want you to pay attention. 
And so basically had lunch with Sam, Tim, my agent, me and Emily, who was the editor for the first like three quarters of the book before she moved on to another role in in kids books. Yeah. We all sat down and they're like, okay, let's do it. (laughs) So it was that simple because of the, the rejections beforehand, like they were fueled. Mm -hmm. They got me to that. Yes. And because I was prepared, I was Mm -hmm. able to do that. And then in a way, the pandemic year has been really difficult, of course, or or multiple years now, but, but in 2020, when everything shut down, I was able to hunker down at night and, you know, after my day job, just write this manuscript. You were so brave in my book, but reading the book, it didn't feel like bravery. It felt like this is who you are. You're this curious person who wanted to go have these thousand and one plus conversations. But so many people listening, I know are thinking, how do I do that? What would you tell these people if they're thinking that? I'm going to be riding a bicycle no matter where I live. So that doesn't feel more or less dangerous, but there's, you know, incredible people and not incredible people all over the world. And I think the balance of it is about the same pretty much everywhere you go (laughs) for me. Yeah. Really relying on and honing that intuition and being constantly aware of my surroundings in a way was skill that served me really well. And I don't know, I think that there's something really incredible too, about traveling solo as a woman. I also recognize that I carry a certain amount of privilege with me everywhere I go in my body because of my race. I'm white because of how tall I am. Even I'm five, five and a half, but basically no one considers me intimidating when they first Mm -hmm. see me. If nothing else, I think that being a white woman in her early twenties, who's not super tall (laughs) meant that people were very, very quick to trust me. There would be times when I didn't know where I was going to sleep. I often did not know where I was going to sleep each night. And so I'd rock up to a town, my water bottles would be almost empty. And so I'd find someone who looked nice, who was watering their plants in the late afternoon light and ask if I could fill up my water bottles. And they'd ask me where I was going (laughs) and where I was going to sleep the night. And I would say, I don't know. (laughs) And, you know, this led to all sorts of invitations. I camped in backyards. There was this one family in Australia who had a spare bedroom with a race car bed in it. So I spent (laughs) a night in a race car bed that I was barely small enough to fit in, but it was, you know, so much fun. And then there's all these incredible conversations that happen around people's kitchen table. I know that not everyone has access to those spaces. For example, I met very few other solo women cyclists, but handful of solo men, there was this this one guy, Nico, I believe his name was, he was this petite Italian who would stop every 20 kilometers and roll himself a cigarette and then keep going. And we happened to be camping out the same night in a rugby field behind a school. (laughs) We shared pasta and shared stories. And I asked him if people took him in because he had just cycled across a massive distance of the center of Australia. But like when he was in towns, when there were people around, when it wasn't just desert and kangaroos. And he said, no, people never take me in. I was like, oh, wait, okay. This is a way in which in fact, it's great to be a woman in the world. (laughs) I don't know. I just mentioned that to say, like, if you have a dream of connecting with people in a specific way, go after it. I found it really helpful to quantify it, to be really specific about what I wanted to do. And it was a bit of a joke to do a thousand and one at first, but then Mm -hmm. once I started doing it, it really didn't want to stop. So I'd like to ask my guests the final question. And this may, may be a really big question for you because I imagine there's so many things, but what would you like to learn next? I am dabbling with a fiction manuscript right now that is a hot mess. I would love to be courageous enough to share what I've written with someone else to get feedback, read a handful of of books and articles and things about structure and fiction. And I didn't get all the way to 50,000 words, but I did National Novel Writing Month uh, with a community of people 
online, which was really fun. Yeah, I, I would like to continue to see these lessons I learned from this this first book can apply to another mm-hmm. genre. And of course, you know, some of the big themes will be similar because I am me and I think about these things constantly. That's where I'm angling towards next in my nighttime writing life. Of course, I have a day job separately in journalism. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for writing A Thousand and One Voices on Climate Change and, and for coming here and talking to us about your process and your courage and your adventures. Um, it's a wonderful book and uh, I'm so glad that the time was right for it. Yeah, thank you. It was my my pleasure. Really enjoyed talking with you and yeah, thanks for having me. So many exciting little gems to take away from that. What really landed with you? Just one thing that you want to make sure to reflect on, maybe text a friend about, share the episode so that you can reflect together on what is a takeaway for you to bring into your creative toolkit. That's what I want from you listening to these episodes. I want you to hear a lot of options about the creative life, but I also want you to get some real tools that you can use. For me, I'm really taking away using rejection. (laughs) Even after all these years, sometimes it's hard for me. And I love her openness about that process of getting 40 plus rejections for the first book proposal. I love that tenacity, but also that gentleness and curiosity. What are you going to take away? I hope you're subscribed because next week we have a special guest for you. It's maybe somebody you haven't heard of before, but she really has an amazing insight into a whole different way to approach the creative process, which is why I had her on. I don't just have famous people on or people's names that you know. That'd be boring. It'd be like everybody else's podcast. Her name is Kim Hermanison. She has a PhD in education. She has had a very colorful career in coaching and mentoring and teaching. Teachers had to teach. And she is obsessed with image and metaphor and how it can open up your creative process like nothing else. And so she's going to take us into that and teach you a little bit about it and explain it to you. And I think you're going to find it truly illuminating, even for those of you who aren't visual people, which I'm not. I found it really powerful and I started to use it in my own life and with my students. And in the meantime, make sure, please, no matter what, to create out loud.